and welcome to another somewhat belated episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Joe Alcock, and as usual, I'm joined with the unique and remarkable Dr. Coffee Brown. Dr. Coffee Brown. And it's <laughs> and not like we've been goofing off. We've been not, doing them, them them vlog things with that, with that Kate, Kate Rusk lady. Right, so... Uh, yeah, unfortunately, Kate Rusk couldn't join us today. She is off at the. She's nice. She's nice. American Academy of Physical Anthropologists. Meeting. I know you're doing it. <laughs> so she's at she's at the the physical anthropology meeting, big anthropology meeting. She's uh, obviously this is her life's work, and it's the topic of her PhD. So she is uh, busy hobnobbing with the people in the field, and just like Coffee mentioned. If you haven't been paying attention, we do have this live stream that we've been doing just about every Tuesday at, well, it's about... Uh, Generally what, been 5.30. 5.30. That's, that's mountain, time, mountain standard. standard time. And you can do the math and, and uh, correct for your location. So check that out. Uh, those streams are, in fact, archived on the inertia.tv site, and we'll link that uh, in the show notes for this episode and Kate has been sending them to me usually a week or so late um, and I've been meaning to put them out onto this podcast but quite frankly I just haven't done it so you know my wife is yeah. not in medicine or science yeah. but she actually enjoys them oh good so I asked her about it like are they too like techie too geeky yeah. She's, she actually listens to them all the way through yeah well they are techie and yeah. they are geeky they are geeky because yeah. that's the way that we are that's the way we roll folks and but you're, proud of it. You're used to that by now, and so that, that's, that's okay. So great. So what are we going to talk about today, Coffee? So today's topic is something called cognitive biases. And um, I would suggest that it's a largish topic, bigger than we can cover in one day. But we might start with what are they, and what are some of the ones that are especially relevant to medicine, since that's where you and I mostly live. But I will say that for people who aren't medical... It doesn't matter. Cognitive biases are everywhere in life. And once you start reading about them, you'll be impressed by how many there are, how ubiquitous they are, and how at first glance insane they appear. But we'll talk about whether or not they make evolutionary sense. Yeah, so I think there are, there, at least in my mind, and hopefully you'll disagree with me, there are two, <laughs> there are two evolutionary takeaways from these cognitive biases. So one is that the way that our brain interprets the world has been shaped by natural selection. Mm -hmm. So indeed, where where there's a mismatch between, if there is an objective reality, and that we misperceive the world, so that we see this with uh, you know optical illusions and these kinds of things, but that has to do with the architecture of our brains and the architecture of our neurochemistry, and that at least some of these biases that we see as being errors, er error-prone mistakes, are indeed the product of evolution. And so they may actually be adaptive in some sense. So we can talk about that. So that's, and you have uh, up on your computer here, uh, work by Marty Hazelton, evolutionary uh, psychologist at UCLA, who is just terrific. And uh, co-author Daniel Nettle, and their 2005 chapter called The Evolution of Cognitive Bias. You can get this online. It is uh, open access. And you can check it out for yourself. It's good stuff. Uh, we won't go through through all of this, but that's one evolutionary takeaway: is that some of our biases, what we what we what we view as, you know, errors in judgment and errors in perception, and ways that we can misperceive things and actually harm patients. That some of these things may actually be be evolution. They, they have evolved, 
and they may reflect trade-offs and or adaptations in some instances. So that's one takeaway. The other major takeaway, as far as I'm concerned, is that these biases uh, sometimes prevent us from doing what I would call evolutionarily informed medicine. And some of these biases reinforce kind of bad practice. And we, we know that a lot of what we do in medicine is faulty, and some of it some of what we do is not supported by the evidence, and yet we have a hard time overturning the previous paradigm and taking on a new one because of, I, I think, some, some of these biases. Like the bias towards action is one that you mentioned. Yeah, so so many triggers, so little time. But, right. Uh, I would like to start by talking about what I mean when I use the word cognitive bias. Yeah, let's define our and terms, people. You can, you may want to modify this a bit. So I use it in a slightly idiosyncratic way. Here's what I mean by that. Okay. Cognitive biases is not that tightly defined of a term. It refers to a pattern of thought which has in it systematic bias. But by usage and by convention, in the, in the way that I want to use it for today's discussion, I mean those heuristics that are inborn in us. For example, uh, stranger anxiety, uh, the halo effect, uh, a, uh, extremely poor ability at estimating odds ratios and right. things like that. So I mean the ones that come with the software package we're born with. Yeah, right? so have you ever been uh, hiking and you see a stick and for a moment you think for sure it's a snake? Right. You know, <laughs> there's definitely the bias for us to misperceive a linear object for a snake when we're out hiking. So the, the cognitive bias that a cop is likely to demand a bribe from you would be a learned bias. Evolution didn't put that in your head. But the cognitive bias that someone who looks different from you in a distinguishable way, the uniform, the mirrored glasses, the stern expression, is an enemy or a threat of some kind, that is the core heuristic that we were born with. Okay, so there, so there are a variety of heuristics that may be, they may at least in some, in some instances misperceive uh, reality. If, if again, <laughs> well, everything that we perceive is the product of our brains. Well, so, one know. of the core ways we might think about the evolution of cognitive biases is that it's often the case, especially in the evolutionary world, where you don't get a whole bunch of tries. You don't get to flip the coin a hundred times and find out, did it really come up an even number of heads and tails? Right. You get only a few shots at most things before you die. And so certain errors, the error in favor of the stick being a snake costs you nothing, or nearly nothing. You jump back and you look startled and your friends laugh at you. But the error of thinking the snake is a stick and reaching down to pick it up can be a life-ending error. So some cognitive biases, one way to think about them may be that they intentionally favor the error which is less costly. So that certainly is true for things that are risky. Oh, and, and I'm using intentionally, yeah. but this is not meant to imply teleology to and evolution. It doesn't necessarily even mean... That, that we're conscious of these things. Mm -hmm. So Randy Nessie, who wrote the book with George C. Williams, which we've mentioned before in this podcast called Why We Get Sick, and he now runs the Arizona State University Center for Evolutionary Medicine. He coined the term the smoke detector principle, mm -hmm. that we, are, we accept false alarms in terms of our startle response or our anxiety response or our panic response or you know, freaking out about a snake when it doesn't actually exist. Because uh, those, those costs of overreaction are relatively small, whereas the cost of not responding, if there is a true threat, is actually quite high. It could, it could be your life. 
And so he actually he's made an effort to quantify this, and he uses this principle to explain why we humans frequently appear to have what, what appear to be maladaptive overreactions to threats. Yeah, would a rational person build such a system? Sure, your oil light's designed to come on before you're completely out of oil. Right. Yeah. So those are those are uh, an example that I think that we could, again, I don't know how much empiric data supports this, but it's at least plausible that evolution would have shaped our 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 sensory systems and our behavioral responses to things in a way that would that would favor uh, a hair trigger just to some very very life threatening kinds of stimuli so that we always respond so that that would be that would be the idea behind the smoke detector principle but the opposite is also true that um, so one I think that Marty Hazelton mentions in her in her chapter here is the idea that uh, men tend to over perceive sexual availability in uh, so we'll say a friendly or even a neutral interaction with a woman whereas a woman is far more far less likely to have the same kind of uh, make that same sort of error with with men so in other words a, a man if, if, if in, in, a, in a dyad between a, a, man, a man and a woman of reproductive age uh, men are more often they would more often rate uh, the woman as being um, uh, sexually available or uh, coming on to him or those those kinds of things. When in fact the woman would say, "No, that's not it at all. That was a complete misperception of the, of the scenario. That there was no such intention was, uh, you know, intended by me, the woman." And so this is it. So this this would be a, a, a an error in the opposite direction. And women are far less likely to have that that particular uh, cognitive bias. But you could imagine that such a bias, if it if it does exist. Um, I think that Marty Hazelton would argue that that bias might actually be adaptive, that men would tend to overrate uh, the willingness of uh, a woman to engage in sex, for instance, because every once in a while, um, one might be. <laughs> Again, this is like, I'm just trying to paraphrase Marty Hazelton. I don't want to make I don't want to get into meet the Me Too movement. Um, this, this certainly you can you can sort of you can see how if these cognitive biases do exist, and I think that they do, it could lead to all kinds of trouble. Yeah, way to go, right to the gender third rail. Let's touch right. some racism issues, too. No. See, I thought, Which, by I thought, the way, I we thought you were about to go there. right into here. No, no, let's, let's, let's not. But <laughs> I will say that uh, a giant caveat, we can show for sure that these cognitive biases exist and are ubiquitous, if not universal. And we can crunch the numbers and show that the theories, these hypotheses to explain the, their evolution, make mathematical sense. But we cannot actually show, most of the time, that they actually were sorted for in the way that we're describing. We're constructing stories that fit the facts, but remember that all theories predict the past. A good theory predicts the future. That's true. So you'd want to, ideally, you'd want to have an experimental model in which you could uh, vary these kinds of things. And I think that the, with regard to the smoke detector principle and the idea that you can have an, an anxious animal uh, if there are more, say, more predators, and they'll respond at, at a hair trigger, you can see those kinds of behaviors. I think that that work's actually been done experimentally with stickleback fish. We could show that in herds of animals, the ones that flinch more readily are less likely to get killed and eaten, and that would strongly support the hypothesis. Right. Would it be the same as having proven it? 
Hmm. Is well, it listen. as strong as an RCT, uh, a randomly <laughs> random controlled trial? Right. You know, there's. Yeah. So when we talk about strength of evidence, yeah, and especially in in terms of medical science, we often rely on observational kinds of uh, data that have all kinds of opportunities for bias <laughs> and mistakes, um, you know, selection bias, uh, confirmation bias. We'll, 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 at some point, we should probably try to define some of these things. Um, but that's, that, that's, that, that's what we consider the lowest quality of evidence in medicine, is when someone, say, queries a database and they find an association between pickle eating and uh, red rashes uh, of the skin. Um, and there may be no such actual relationship. Um, and if you, if you query enough variables, you will find some spurious associations. Mm -hmm. But if you believe that pickles, you know, if you believe in your heart, that there's a mechanism by which pickles cause a rash, and then you find it, then that's gonna, that could be an example of confirmation bias. So with that fairly strong caveat, just to streamline things, I propose that for the remainder of the conversation, we act as if um, a credible hypothesis that actually mathematically works out, something where the numbers would support that it could be sorted for in that way, is going to constitute evidence uh, at least at the level that we can get evidence. or, or So I don't want to keep re-explaining that with every cognitive bias we discuss. In other yeah, words. sure. Um, that's certainly true. You mentioned randomized controlled trials. That's what we think of as being the gold standard in medicine and in science generally, although there are problems with RCTs also. And then layered on top of that would be the meta-analysis, uh, which, which you combine a variety of randomized controlled trials. Each of these has, has their problems. But, um, but to your point, uh, there are different um, kinds of evidence to support any given claim. And there are tons of things we believe for which we did not have RCTs, by the way. Right. Good point. So let's, 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 let's uh, pivot a little bit and talk about some of the cognitive biases that might lead us to make mistakes. Yeah, let's in segue into the ones that affect us in our care of patients. Yeah. So... We, we went through a bunch right before we started recording, um, and we were trying to kind of narrow it down to maybe the top three, and we may not be able to get there. I would say the halo effect. Oh, actually, even a better one. So uh, this is in that same paper, by the way, that Dr. Alcock was mentioning a minute ago. Uh, so I was just reading about this a short time ago. In one of the studies they cite, persons of higher socioeconomic status are more vulnerable to stereotype other people than people of lower socioeconomic status. Hmm. Their explanation for this is that if I'm of low socioeconomic status, there's a greater threat to me if I misread you. If, if I don't understand the social cues around me directly, I'm more vulnerable to harm. But if I'm of high socioeconomic status, I can afford to lump you in with some stereotype. It's unlikely you can hurt me for that. Fascinating. So bringing it back to, say, the emergency department. Docs are high socioeconomic status, you know, and bias has been shown. So you bring in, uh, for instance, the homeless guy mm -hmm. who's unconscious, mm -hmm. smells kind of bad, attending walks in and says, well, this is clearly a drug overdose, so the patient's just drunk. Mm -hmm. And the lowly medical student says, well, he's got a lump on his head, and he's got, hey, a vial of insulin in his pocket. Maybe this is hypoglycemia mm -hmm. or it's a head injury. And indeed, that's what it turns out to be. Um, so, yeah, so jumping to conclusions. So you're arguing that the higher status person, uh, the, the attending physician, of which I am one, um, 
would be more prone to make that sort of error of, of stereotyping a drunk homeless So it's, I'm making an inference. This is yeah. not the group that he studied. Mm -hmm. But other studies have shown that docs have, unfortunately, more biases than we think we do. For example, yeah. when I was in medical school, I learned to present people as, uh, this is a 42-year-old Hispanic female, or this is a 56-year-old black man, or this is a 12-year-old Chinese girl or something. And thank God we don't do that anymore. Right. We really don't. We have actually <laughs> seen that when that's part of the presenting information, not necessarily every doc in every case all the time, but statistically over large numbers, that actually can harm the care if the patient is a different group than the doc. And by the way, notice I didn't say non-white. If the doc is of a different race than white, then it could harm whites. It just hurts you if you're a different group than that, or a different gender, or a different generation. It doesn't matter how you're defined as outgroup. The point is, it's easier to make you outgroup if we, if we have that kind of information. Which, then this is really a fascinating topic. I tend to think, and it does align with my political leanings, that race doesn't make a huge difference when it comes to describing a patient's problem. Having said that, I'm immediately thinking of, you know, the Pueblo Indian, the Pueblo Native American groups uh, that are nearby that have do have a higher risk of having certain problems like diabetes and obesity. But in general, we all get those kinds of issues. It's not like there's a whole different universe of medical problems that afflict a given ethnic background. And so, yes, we don't do this when we're when we're uh, presenting patients on rounds. There are uh, ethnically different distributions of disease, mm -hmm. and that's why we used to do that. But from a Bayesian analysis standpoint, the difference in prevalence between ethnic groups has a relatively minor impact on the ultimate diagnosis. We have so many other cues we work from, and it's not like you're not going to get the information. When you walk into the room and meet the patient, right. you will notice she's a 12-year-old Chinese girl. But by then, you've been thinking about the case and not, so not, forth. Not Korean? Or Asian, let's say. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> say a few words I'd know. Uh, I'd be able to pick it out pretty quickly. Right. But the point is, if you're thinking about the differential for headache for a little while before you enter the room, rather than what does headache mean to me in a 12-year-old Korean girl or Chinese or Japanese or Asian, however, you know, then you go in with a, a broader differential in your mind and a more open mind to listen to the cues that you get. At least that's what I think is happening here. It does seem that simply delaying the information, remember, it's not hidden. We're going to notice these things as soon as we walk into the room. But delaying it seems to offset this bias effect. Right. And to the extent that we might have incorrect ideas about you know, propensity for disease and these sorts of things, I think that having a conversation as we do with, with trainees and generating a differential kind of irrespective of someone's ethnic or, or background or race, that we would generate, I think, perhaps a, a broader differential. But again, we haven't tested this idea. Who knows? In the articles I was reading about the effect of presenting the ethnicity information mm -hmm. up front, yes, it does help to delay that. Well, yeah. but not presenting it was how they said it. But yeah. since we know the docs are going to find that out, I can infer they did somewhere along the line figure out that it was a 56-year-old Puerto Rican man. Right. You know, It's just that if it wasn't part of the initial presentation, that seems to mitigate the bias. Okay. 
so I think we that seems like an inference we can make to me. Mm -hmm. um, another so one. Talk, oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Take it. I was just going to mention, you know, so anchor bias. Mm -hmm. So if, for instance, we thought that you could imagine, that we'll get back to the homeless example, that every time we see a down and out person uh, who's not acting normally, that they are likely to be drunk or possibly overdosed on some some substance. Um, if we you know, walk in and we, we smell an odor of alcohol, then that would confirm that that that'd be a confirmation bias. Uh, and we, we would be anchoring on this idea that our our patient is drunk when in fact they're not. And I can I, I, immediately I'm thinking of uh, a patient. This is back in the in the old ER here before they did any remodeling. And they used to have a lot of patients in, in hallway stretchers. And there was a guy who was brought in who was restrained um, and was drooling and out of it. Um, and within a few minutes, he was pulling against the restraints on all fours, uh, looking around vacantly, drool pouring out of his mouth, and acting in the most bizarre fashion that I'd ever seen. And clearly this guy was not drunk, and he had a big subdural hematoma. So that's, so the benefit of, the other benefit of, of experience is that we, we recognize some of these biases in ourselves, and we can remember the mistakes that we've made, and hopefully we can learn from them. Yeah, it would be nice if we didn't have to learn from mistakes, but, but we, we do. often do. And listen, for, all, for those out there, you know, here's a little uh, pro tip. Um, docs make mistakes. It just happens. And well, here's another pro tip. One of the antidotes to this category of mistake mm -hmm. is to run templates in our head all the time, to have a methodical approach to patients that isn't as sensitive to our biases. So whether I like a patient or not, I'm going to CT his head if I don't have an explanation for his bizarre behavior. Right. Right? So that's just my template. But bizarre behavior, I don't know why, you're getting a screen, a scan. Now, if I can answer it more simply, great. But if I don't get the answer I want quickly, yeah, you're going to go, you're going to go down to the tube of truth. Right. Um, the other way that we often make mistakes is if someone just doesn't, again, doesn't fit our stereotype of how someone should look uh, with, with a given problem. Now, here's the problem. So this is another bias we often see. It's called the confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. I've decided this guy's problem is hypoglycemia. Well, I'll, now I have a better example, actually. Uh, unfortunately, a real-world example, the patient appeared to be a narcotic overdose. The physician gave the patient Narcan, and the patient improved drastically. Narcan is the uh, antidote. Antidote to, to, to uh, opiates. Uh, opioids, yeah. And so the patient wasn't normal, didn't come back to normal, but came way back from where they were. And that was enough in the physician's mind to confirm, yep, Right diagnosis, yep. right treatment, right response. Got the diagnosis. Time to move on. I got a lot of charts call, in my hands. Let's call the admitting doctor and get it over with. And a lot of pressure to keep moving. Right. That patient was actually septic with necrotizing fasciitis and had a horrible outcome. Yeah. And it turns out that rarely Narcan can make sepsis look better. Mm -hmm. Well, because there's a need to get the right answer and get it quickly so we can do the right thing for, for the patient and for all the other patients who are waiting for us, there's tremendous pressure to accept an answer that seems consistent enough. And after all, most real-world patients never look exactly like they're supposed to unless they've read the book and they're hypochondriacs. Right. <laughs> so it's For difficult sure. to get around that confirmation bias, but at least it's useful to be aware of it. And again, I think being methodical in your approach is one of the, the keys to being a good physician.
it took me a little while to learn that, by the way. Yeah. And I think that I, I wonder about that. I think that you're right. Of course, being methodical, taking your time, not being rushed, uh, being aware of these biases, actively trying to combat them. All these things are super important. But I think that the other feature that medical students don't realize is that a lot of what we do as working physicians is pattern recognition. Something fits the pattern and we're done. Mm -hmm. We look at the EKG, it looks like an ST elevation, acute myocardial infarction, we're done. Most of the time. Every once in a while it'll be something different. <laughs> but you know, we, we, we recognize patterns. And the problem that I find is that sometimes, and this is where I really have to stop and think, is that you know, having done this job now for going on 20 years, that there'll be some patients that just don't fit any pattern, you know? And you think, gosh, is it, is it sepsis? Is it a heart attack? And well, maybe it's a heart attack. Gosh, but this feature doesn't quite match. And then you try to convince yourself, yep, look, look there, there, there's that, that one finding. It looked more like this yeah. than anything else. Yeah, you, I bet it's Then you're, you're busy trying to yeah. screw that square peg into the round hole, and you're, you're pounding it down, and you convince yourself that, the, like I said, oftentimes we do this based on anchoring. Whatever the first thing is that we think, then we tend to uh, sort of accrete evidence that allows us to go ahead with that diagnosis. Um, that's when I, I, I say, hey, you know what, pay attention to that. And I tell trainees, Stop. Don't do that. Catch yourself. When Catch yourself. That. Say, yeah. what, what if I am wrong? What's the worst thing that could happen if I am wrong about this? And sometimes it's really, it really could be darn, darn catastrophic. I do the same thing, actually. I make yeah. everybody that I teach mm -hmm. consciously, out loud, say, if I'm wrong, the next most likely thing is. Right. Every single time. We would be yeah. so much better off if we did that routinely yeah. and methodically. But that's one of these taboos in medicine, is that we, we hate to say that we're wrong. You know? Well, there's Which tremendous is, pressure on us. That's another bias. A bias of overconfidence. What do they call it? Satisfying bias? Uh, well, the confirmation bias Pre and the satisfaction bias, pre premature closure, yeah. are closely related, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. They're not quite the same, but they're pretty tightly related. Yeah. But I would say that um, in terms of the evolution of cognitive biases, we are highly attuned to signals of status and we work in this hierarchical environment, and I think that systems like hospitals and medical schools should try to flatten those hierarchies whenever possible, uh, because the you know when you don't want to confront somebody if you're just hey the the boss said this is a heart attack, that that's what it is, and it turns out it wasn't, and it was a pulmonary embolus or an aortic dissection. Um, that that's an, that's a, an area where um, that we we can insert bias into the equation. So tangenting for a second. I'm really involved right we now never in interprofessional education, yeah. which is all about that, all about mm -hmm. making the hierarchy of medicine more horizontal than it is now. Yeah, a very but worthy goal. One thing we haven't quite worked out, I wouldn't say yet, if I and another caretaker disagree about the patient, we still got to pick a treatment and move forward with it, and we really probably shouldn't be haggling at the bedside. Mm. Yeah. So how... What happens if two caretakers in a horizontal construct like this Gotta take it disagree outside. and can't get to a point of agreement? Hmm. By the way, I will say uh, my experience in medicine, and this is one of the things I really respect about my colleagues, is that you can end any debate by if you can agree on what's best for the patient. The problem is there's not always a clear answer to that question. Right. Yeah. So... 
does there need to be somebody where the buck stops? Does that person need to be a physician? Or, in fact, are you just ob obligated to argue until you get a, a consensus of some kind or somebody beats somebody else down? That doesn't seem like the right answer. Well, I think a bigger problem, at least in our institution, and I'm sure everywhere really, is that people fail to take responsibility for the patient. They'll say, this is not my problem. And it's somebody else's problem. So you don't even have the opportunity to really get into it in the way that you were describing. For the first, and so then the patient just sits there in limbo. This, this, I can guarantee you, folks, this happens. Uh, this happens where we work. It probably happens where you work as well. Actually, I don't want to chase that. <laughs> I'm just going to say I'm saddened to see that we've moved in that direction. It was once very different. Oh, okay, yeah. I can actually remember a time when that would never have happened. It mm -hmm. just wouldn't happen. And now it's yeah, pretty common. It's pretty ubiquitous. Yeah. So that's a problem. But yeah, but getting back to our hierarchy problem, there, there have been famous cases where people lower on the hierarchy scale, say a trainee or an RN, in the, in, in the setting where there was a you know, high-ranking, you know, very senior attending, uh, didn't speak up when there were some very obvious things wrong, and that's led to patient deaths. So I forget which, which, uh, which one we'll call that. But on the other hand, if the least experienced person in the room is arguing with the most experienced person in the room, while they are likely to be right, so a logical fallacy, not a cognitive bias, is argument from authority. Mm -hmm. right. There is a place for it, though. Not every logical fallacy is always wrong. For example, reductio ad absurdium also sometimes is the, is the right dog to chase. But um, reductio ad absurdium means taking an argument to its extreme. So if I walk to the north end of a room, it does not mean I'm on my way to the North Pole. But if I legitimize machine guns for home burglar deterrence, it probably does mean I'm heading toward anarchy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So there's a place for that one and, and not a place for that one. So keeping with the Latin theme, you mentioned the do no harm uh, mentioned the <laughs> bias that you mentioned. Yeah, so here's another uh, cognitive bias that this one is actually formally included in medicine. The first words, in my case, this was actually true. Literally, the first words that they said to us when we sat down in class the first day were primum non nocere, which is Latin for first, do no harm. And so physicians are taught formally and from the very beginning that a crime of commission is worse than a crime of omission. And but to they're, be sure, they're taught this, but it's almost immediately abandoned. Thank God. Thank well, God. Really? <laughs> Anybody rational should abandon that. Now, it doesn't mean we should go the other direction. Right. We're, we're not advocating the... for harm here, folks. Right. So, <laughs> we're but, talking about is there, do we do more harm by doing things to people, or do we do more harm <clears throat> to people by not doing things? That's to people? a different question, actually. Oh, okay. So, listen carefully. Yeah, yeah. Do we do more harm if we act than if we don't act? That may well be true that when we act, and make an error, we harm people more often than when we withhold action and make an error. Okay. But that's not what primum non says. Primum mm -hmm. non is basically about the idea that not acting and harming your patient. So oh. it was 100% error. I didn't act and the patient had a bad outcome is less culpable than if I did act and the patient had a bad outcome consequent to my actions. So you're saying that by, by not doing something, that that is worse. That's the worst sin. Sure. So yeah. if I withhold antibiotics and, oh, my God, you were septic. Dang, I killed you. Sorry about that. Right. 
that that's somehow less of a crime than if I gave you antibiotics and you're allergic so, to penicillin and so, oops, I killed you. So we doctors are basically on, on the hair trigger, say with the antibiotics. And we just, we see the stimulus, we, we go ahead and we, we have that knee jerk reaction. We're almost like the smoke detector principle in, in real life. I don't, you know, I don't think that Randy Nessie has thought about the smoke detector principle in that regard. But yeah, we're, we're horribly afraid of something bad happening to our patient by virtue of us doing nothing. And we have a very, very I hard think time. We're more horribly doing afraid of something bad happening to our patient and people giving us that why didn't you do something look. But that's a bad fear. That's not one we should respond to. But that's one that I think that we do respond to. Yeah. And we feel it coming from our colleagues. Mm -hmm. We feel it coming from some other specialties sometimes. We feel it coming from patients and families. We, again, this could be a misperception. Because maybe the patient doesn't want us to do all this stuff, you know? Well, and part of the reason that the initial advice is primum non occurri is that we have a strong bias in favor of action yeah. over inaction. So, so let's, it's meant to offset that a bit. Let's underline that. So that's what we'll call it during this podcast, the bias to action. And I think this is a very real thing. And I think I, I see it every day with, with trainees, with the residents that, uh, that I work with. Now, this one I would not list as a cognitive bias, but rather as a learned zoological fallacy. Um, but the bias to action is compelling in medicine. It's really, really hard to keep your hands off and wait, for example, for an illness to declare. Uh, yeah. That would be an example of inaction. Uh, what looks like inaction feels like inaction. Mm -hmm. It's actually totally appropriate medicine often. Right. But, uh, so, but there's a, yeah. There, yeah, so there are three things here that I think are relevant. So one is this bias to action. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the antibiotic example. So we are more afraid of someone having a undiagnosed or, or a simmering infection that we miss and we fail to give antibiotics and then the patient dies of sepsis. That's what we're more afraid of than giving antibiotics to someone who is indeed healthy. And, make, and, uh, and, and in an individual case, mm -hmm. It's probably true that the harm of inaction, the potential harm, is greater than the harm of early action or excessive action. That is, we probably hurt fewer. Individually, I'm less likely to hurt you by giving you antibiotics than by missing sepsis. But if I think that every time, then many, many millions of people get antibiotics they don't need and antibiotic resistance increases, whereas relatively few people... Uh, smaller-ish number are saved from sepsis who wouldn't have been obvious initially. Right. So whether or not that's true, and I think we could, we could really get into the weeds on that, that particular question, but that is what people believe. And that's what patients think too, most of the time. And so because of that, we prescribe a lot of antibiotics and we have this, this bias to action. Then there's also this uh, attribu attribution bias. Patient calls back or they come back in a couple days and they say, hey, I'm better. Like, Thank goodness we gave you the antibiotics. Yeah, sure, you had a viral cold, and you didn't need the antibiotics. You were going to get better no matter what. We think we helped them. They we think, think we helped yeah, them. We, we think that, that we helped them. So there's this attribution bias. Uh, and that's true. I, I was thinking as I was driving over here, that's true, of course, for urinary tract infections. There's just bacterial infections. And then, yeah, the antibiotics oftentimes will indeed treat those infections. But in the pre-antibiotic era, people got urinary infections, and most people got better. These were not uniformly people died of infection a lot before but the, people were not uniformly killed by a bladder infection back in the day. How do we know this? Well, we know this because sometimes we don't treat it and people get better. They didn't uniformly <laughs> survive them either. Though. 
And that's also true but for the people that receive antibiotics, so they don't, they don't uniformly survive. But I see your point, okay? But we'll, we'll just call that attribution error. We tend to say, hey, we did the intervention. Patients seem to get better. That, yay, yay for us. That attribution error, which is, by the way, one of the cognitive biases, mm -hmm. in the sense that I described at the beginning of the show, that's um, a real problem. We tend to judge a physician's competence by the outcome of the patient. I mean, that seems so compelling, right? If the patient got better, you're a good doc. If they got worse, you're a bad doc. But in fact, everything in medicine is stochastic, and I cannot overstate this. If a doc has a pattern of getting fewer wins than would be you know, statistically expected, that might be meaningful. Right they have on. a pattern of getting way more wins than the next guy. That might be meaningful. It's like the stockbroker or the stock picker. Yeah. Yep. A person who can actually pick like 100 winning stocks in a row, A, doesn't exist, and B, would be really good at his job. Mm -hmm. um, but in any individual case, for example, when people have a bad outcome after surgery, they always phrase it to me this way, the doctor botched my surgery. No, maybe you didn't heal well. Maybe you had bad damn luck. Maybe you didn't follow all the instructions afterward. Maybe the hospital has bad infection control. Yeah, there's all kinds of things. But the doctor botched my surgery is the way it always parses out. Right. On the other hand, I've absolutely seen people do boneheaded things and the patient can't stop singing their praises because they got a good outcome afterward. Mm -hmm. You know, So that's an aspect of the attribution error. The patient cannot judge. They usually have a single encounter with one of right. us. They can't so get a statistical So if picture. you are N equals 1, that's not going to be sufficient evidence yeah. to judge if the surgeon's good or not. But yeah. yeah, the surgeon was good for that individual patient, or bad. <laughs> and one of the things patients absolutely detest is any sign of uncertainty. But in fact, if you look at the data, and here I would refer you to Philip Tiptree or his data is better, more digestibly summarized in Dan Gardner's book, um, Future Babble, the more certain people sound, the less likely they are to be correct. But, right. we have, but we have to sound certain in order to reassure our patients. And this eventually contaminates our inward processes as well, so I that's, fear. That's a bias on the part of both patients and doctors. Yeah. yeah. Huh. We shouldn't be following people around who sound sure. Whenever somebody right. says, I'm absolutely sure, the one thing we should all know is to march in the other direction. I'm with you on that one. So what's some other uh, biases, cognitive, medical cognitive biases you wanted, you were thinking about? So we have the anchor bias. We've, we've talked about that. That's uh, where we misdiagnose things, and then we get this trying to fit the square peg into the round hole, ignoring evidence that doesn't fit, seizing on the one piece of evidence that seems to fit. Uh, we do that all the time. Um, we've talked about the uh, attribution error um, and the, this immediacy bias. And I wanted to kind of elaborate just a bit more on that one. Okay. Because uh, we were just listening to a, a podcast. Uh, this is the SMAC podcast. That's S-M-A-C-C. And a recent podcast that was released on April 8th uh, featured Ronaldo Bellamo. And he actually went over some of these. <laughs> Just, you know, this is pure serendipity. As I, I was listening to this podcast driving over here, here he is talking about things that are near and dear to my heart. Um, a little bit of over-treatment, a little bit of over-reliance on kind of faulty notions of physiology. And he talks about um, the bias to action. And he talks about the, uh, this immediacy uh, attribution error. And he talks about a trial that we've talked about on this podcast. And this is the, the feast trial, the, the famous feast trial, in which they, he says, that they treated uh, pediatric 
kids in several countries in Africa with the North American standard of care, which is to give them a big fluid bolus. We love the fluids. We love uh, the fluids in North America and in most places in the world. We love hanging that IV bag. We love giving them lots of fluids. And, and we, it makes us, there's that immediacy bias. We give fluids, the patients pink up or they seem to perfuse better or their blood pressure gets better. Their heart rate goes, goes down. We love it and nurses love it. Everybody loves it. And so we give lots of it. But it turns out that our notions of the, of the underlying physiology are incorrect. And in the FEAST trial, we gave the fluids to the kids, and the kids died more often. So we're still, we're still waiting so for the follow-up trial to see I, whether, whether we're killing I kids here. I that a little bit. I, so first of all, this but, is something Joe and I talk about a lot. We're not exactly <laughs> on the same page. And that's okay. I do agree that we over-treat, but I'm... I may be exhibiting wouldn't some back over, away over, from over it quite as bias. much as, <laughs> as my colleague would. Okay, but this and is a this so is an actual result. If you look at the trial, they did actually treat them with fluids, but they gave them small boluses and monitored the results rather than giving them the prescribed 20 cc per kilogram bolus. The children who were treated according to the North American Standard of Care did worse. Right, but that's a yeah. different statement than saying don't give them fluid. I didn't say that. Uh, okay. I said that... This is also true, and you can listen to uh, podcasts by the lead investigator, uh, Kate. Oh, geez, I'm blank, blanking on her name. It's Maitland. Her last name is Maitland. Oh, good Catherine job. Maitland. Well done, sir. And she describes this exact thing that everybody in that who was performing the trial, because they seemed they they saw the children get better, they believed that this treatment worked, and they were shocked to find out that it that went went the opposite direction. So again. This, I, I like this because this, to me, shows the value of science, you know? We need to confront our immediacy bias. We need to confront our biases about the, the underlying mechanisms of disease that we tend to fetishize and put and over-rely on. So these are things we, actually, we should actually actively combat and that we all need to have some humility and we need to overcome our overconfidence bias in medicine. So you're more familiar with this paper than I am, but did they actually leave the children in a shock state? Uh, so they definitely gave them fluids. <laughs> we're going to go back to this one. I mean, th listen, the take home is that the kids who got more fluids did worse. That's the bottom line. Oh, OK. But okay. these nuances are important. Yeah. So um, I kid, kids that were, if I remember correctly, kids that were severely dehydrated from diarrhea, all of those children got, got fluids. But we can, listen, let's go back and we can revisit this one. I sure, think we should sure. have, and just, we can have a deep dive into the fluids. Again, getting back to the Ronaldo Bellamo mm -hmm. podcast, which I would uh, encourage listeners to go and check out. He uh, really talks about fluids in exactly this way. So he, he and I see completely eye to eye on this idea that um, we are probably harm, harming fluids. And he talks about, the again, it's the bias to action. Patient has low blood pressure. Don't just stand there, doctor. Do something. Give them some fluids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we do this. We do it We see every a number day. that's wrong. How can we not intervene and make it right? right. So he calls feeling. this this uh, numerology is what everyone <laughs> calls it. It's, you know, it's completely ascientific, as it turns out. Um, and, in fact, giving, giving adults, not, not just African kids with sepsis, but giving adults here in New Mexico too much fluids harms them. And there's good evidence for that. Uh, contrapunto, of course. I, I would say, good, not contrapunto to you, but to that error. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say, my professors, I think to a man, and any good professor is going to say, treat the patient, not the numbers. 
it's such a it's such good advice. Yeah. It's such good advice. But sometimes treating the patient can also be misleading. Right, because they do look and feel better right, right. after getting a bolus. And when believe me, I had a patient during my last resuscitation shift in which right, I was in the in the recess room and we put the patient on vasopressors. So this was norepinephrine drip and the patient seemed to get better. The numbers looked great. What happened to that patient? Did not end well. Um, I think that. And it, do you believe it would have ended better without the norepi? No, I don't think it made any. I don't think it helped at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that raises an interesting cognitive bias, though. But in we feel better. We feel on the better. Part of the patient, mm-hmm. which is they assume that things that make them feel better are improving their well-being. And we touched on this a little bit. I think maybe during one of our one of our last uh, video casts that we did. Because I was making the point that having pain and anxiety and even nausea, these aversive symptoms can actually be beneficial. And they actually protect us. So sometimes sometimes when when patients are thankful that we have given them opioids and nausea medicines and and this and that, that we we may not actually be making the patient better. We may actually be making them sicker in the long term. We may be hastening their death under certain circumstances. I think that's true. Right. So, but it makes it's so compelling. I mean, if you feel horrible and somebody gives you something that makes you feel better, that seems very intuitive. That's kind of the definition of a cognitive bias. Yeah. That it's making you better. That you are in fact better. You feel better, so why wouldn't you think you are better? So, a lot of people just just to kind of go back to our opioids example, mm-hmm. we fooled ourselves into thinking that you know, pain is the fifth vital sign that we must measure it when patients show up. We need to measure it when patients leave. We need to document that we've done something about this pain. These were all standardized things that the Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation required us to do. And this encouraged a lot of opioid prescribing. We were also taught, of course, that opioids weren't harmful. So, hey, we can ignore the first do no harm mandate that we, uh, <laughs> that we all agree to and sign, the Hippocratic Oath. This is a sore point for me because I was in the wilderness during those years, mm-hmm. railing, banging against the walls and crying for them to throw the bastards out. Yeah. But um, now I feel redeemed. So I'll, I'll just tell you, but people, because of these biases, I, I think that they are, of course people feel better when you give them dilated most of the time if they're not puking their guts out. And there Snake are... Snake oil work that way. There and are docs them. that are absolutely convinced they're doing the right thing for their patients by keeping them on high doses of opioids. And maybe that is true. Maybe that is true for very certain select patients. I doubt it, but maybe I'll just keep the I'll keep the door cracked open that maybe that helps some very select people. And again, I'm I'm not talking about end of life, you know, cancer care and that sort of thing. I'm talking about non-cancer musculoskeletal. We want pain. to help people. We, yeah, we, we do. We get into this field because we want to reduce human suffering. Right. And we want to do good for other people. And when you see somebody's face go from contorted with pain to relaxed and grateful, it's one of the best moments in medicine and therefore creates an addiction for us as well. That's a great point. Very well said. Well, great, then I'll quote myself. (laughs) Yeah, and and particularly if we, you know, I think for a family member um, or for an empathetic doctor, seeing a patient who's in excruciating pain, it creates a lot of you know, angst 
I think, on, on the part of everybody. Yeah. And there's a... And it should. And it should. Yeah. So, of course, there's going to be this bias to action. So, we sometimes have a bias to doing things that harm our patients. In fact, kind of side note, maybe relevant here, maybe a tangent, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But before I got into medicine, I tended to have a comparatively restricted range of emotions most of the time. Not really... That was kind of like uh, Mr. Spock or something, right? I can't see Most it. of the time. I see Batman, but not... But when I felt myself starting to respond to patients, suddenly I was responsible for their well-being and for their outcomes. Yeah. And I began to notice that it was very painful for me if things didn't go well for my patient and felt great to me when things did go well for my patient. I actually had to sit down and consciously process... Am I going to allow this to happen to me? Am I going to allow my emotions to be tied to other people's fates? Am I going to allow myself to feel these higher highs and lower lows? And in fact, um, my training was not to do that. I chose to let that happen because I thought it was appropriate. Although I disliked feeling these wide swings in emotion, that's not who I would rather be. I let that change happen in me because I thought that it was to my patient's benefit, that it it kept me more motivated and more intimately tied to their well-being. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're saying that being becoming a doctor made you a better person? It made me more like you human muggles. <laughs> and I accepted that in that role it had a place, yeah. All right, so you're faking it till you make it. <laughs> no, the feelings are real. I genuinely do get very vested in my patients' outcomes. Yeah. It, that's right. actually a big deal to me. Yeah. Uh, and and well, not in most of the rest of my life. I remember, you know, I think that probably, this probably is true for many practicing physicians and nurses too and other, and medics, that I, I remember the first, first two patients that were gravely ill that I was responsible for as a medical student. And they're vividly etched in my mind. Um, and I remember that feeling of responsibility, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that I actually wanted to get there early in the morning and see how my patient was mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I did care what the outcome was. And you feel your, the motivational part of you getting hijacked mm-hmm. by your professional obligations. And I remember my professors telling me, medicine will change you in this way. And I thought, it's not going to change me. Nobody's going to change me. Right. But actually, I'm grateful for the changes. I'm, I'm actually very grateful that medicine changed me in the ways that it did. Yeah. But I don't want to get to a point where it's like a big emotional thing to me if I get the red car or the blue car, or if I win an argument, or if a, a sports team does well or poorly. I don't, I don't want that to spill over into things that are just frankly not worth getting that worked up over. But patients are worth it. Well, that's true, and I think especially as an emergency doctor, and I think as a doctor or, again, nurse, medic in general, bad things will happen to some of your patients, Mm -hmm. and bad things happened to one of my first patients, and of course I remember how that made me feel, and probably part of becoming a functional emergency physician is at some point you need to retain your humanity, but you can't be overwhelmed by those sorts of events, even though they, they really are overwhelming. This is something I think that we all struggle with. I think that, you know, we've talked about the fact that docs are human, we're prey to biases, mm-hmm. we make mistakes. Yeah. But I think if there's one thing I'd like for the public, the non-medical public to know, 
it's how huge this sense of responsibility is in nearly every doc's uh, persona all the time. Yeah. I think if they knew that about us, really understood us, that aspect of us, in the way that I see it in my colleagues, mm-hmm. um, a lot of, there'd be a lot more trust and rapport between us and our patients. That's true. In thinking about another cognitive bias that we've touched on here is that tolerance to risk. Because when I, when I mentioned that, yeah, we can't be overwhelmed uh, when bad things happen to our patients. And I'm immediately thinking of some bad things that have happened to patients that I've taken care of. But I do have, I've had some colleagues who are extremely risk averse mm-hmm. and practicing in emergency medicine and ordering way too many tests. Mm-hmm. Like I know and, a guy who had a head bleed once. <laughs> His patient had a headache and turned out yeah. to have a head bleed. And he CT literally every headache he ever saw after right. that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or you, you know. You, you think you know the answer, oh, this is how I'm, I practice. When such and such test is negative, that means the patient doesn't have the disorder, and I send them home. And then you get that one where you were wrong. And then, of course, that can dramatically change your practice. It probably shouldn't. And it, 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 you know, Again, we shouldn't have these, these single events shouldn't affect us in that way. But, of course, they do. And you know, we, we are, many of us are sensitive to these bad outcomes, and we want to avoid them. Moreover, if right? you get burned the same way twice, it's yeah. going to look like a pattern to you so, and to all your colleagues. In economics, they call that loss aversion, like yeah. in, in stocks. Yeah. Where your stocks go down, don't want that to happen again. So you, you put, you go into ever more conservative uh, uh, strategies. And right. in, in medicine, yeah, we don't want, we don't want a patient to die. I mean, here's a, again, another pro tip. Unfortunately, we all die. That's, that's, how, that's how it ends for, for all of us. Um, so patients will die. In the emergency room, patients that we take care of will mm-hmm. die. So we have we do have to, to come to terms with that in some way. Now, right. one way I've heard this talked about is that the vast majority of people who die while getting cared for, while getting emergency care at least, are people who um, somebody else wouldn't have been able to save and who would have had a horrible outcome had they survived. Well, that is a reassuring thing to hear. I, I don't know. I hope it's, it's true. true. I hope it's true. I, as I, so this yeah. leads us to another bias, the self-serving bias. Right. When I think about cases I've seen or been around or been involved with, of the ones who die, very few of them were people that, where you think later, boy, if I'd done this other thing, we'd have got a totally different outcome. There might be some where you could have kept them alive, but usually if they're sick enough to die while they're getting emergency care, they're sick enough that their best outcome is a pretty bad outcome. No, I, I think that that's right. And again, just kind of scrolling through the patients that, that, <laughs> that I can think of that fall into that category. Yeah, the die may be cast even before they come to see us. But then, of course, you're discounting the whole role of what's an emergency department for? You know, hey, we're for saving lives, yep. right? We get in there, and we, if we don't act immediately, our patients are going to die. So that would suggest that at least a lot of what we do, <laughs> it does involve making decisions that do save at least some lives. But, the people who, but some of the people who go on to die are, gonna, that are physiologically past that point of no return. Yes, that's what I'm trying yeah, to get at. Yeah. Yeah. It's still horrible. And yes, it still is. It is. It's horrible for everybody. Um, in the emergency department, it is still our primary goal to prevent people from dying. In medicine in general, though, I think we need to grow up a little bit more than that. We, we're now at a stage where we're often prolonging death by a year or two and prolonging suffering while we're at it. 
uh, in the emergency room, we still can treat death as the worst possible outcome. I don't think the rest of the system can afford to keep doing that. Yeah. So we have, we have a bias. Maybe this is a good bias. But we have a bias towards keeping people alive. That's part of our culture, right? Mm -hmm. This is a learned, may not be a, maybe it is a cognitive bias, but it, it's also reinforced by the culture, uh, how, how, we're, how we're trained. Uh, we do very little in the way of palliative care and end of life kinds of conversations, even though we, we should. And of course, we're very good at also making people appear to be alive, right? You mentioned giving epinephrine and getting a heart rate back, yeah. right? And someone who's doomed no matter what. And then, you know, we, then we send them upstairs and they, they die a little bit later. But we don't, have to, we don't have to deal with that. So that might be another, you know, our discomfort with the whole process of dying may be a bias in and of itself. Um, and it may lead to actually doing harm to patients. So I really do believe that uh, <laughs> primum non... Primum non nocere. Nocere. I can't even say it in Latin. So you would agree that a crime of omission is less culpable than a crime of commission? I think, I think the jury's out on that one. Okay. I think we tend to underestimate the harms associated with doing things. Uh, and I, th and I think that we, I, I do think there's a bias towards action. So if, if overall there's a bias towards action, that would imply that we're doing too many things. That would imply that we're harming people by doing things. And that would suggest that overall in the entire system, we are doing more harm by doing too much stuff to people and we should do less. And so I think this, this, this is, this is what I think. I but think. Remember yeah. that jumping away from the stick because it might be a snake is a bias toward action. And yeah. we just talked about the fact the idea that mistaking a stick for a snake is less costly than mistaking a snake for a stick. Well, I think in medicine, you so know, here's I, what we do. We, we, we see the stick. We get out the flamethrower. We torch the entire area. <laughs> we bring out you know? the grenades. We, we do it every <laughs> single time. There's even the possibility of a stick, right? That's what we do. So what and could then, have then, been a positive bias the, gets the end exaggerated. At the end of the day, we end up with a completely desolate, you know, firebombed landscape. Well, you, that's, this is what I guess. The, uh, you know, so there are these unintended consequences. Yep, no snake bites. We can pat, pat ourselves on the back. Fantastic. <laughs> Good job. You know, yeah, we have nothing left. There's no know. snakes left there because it's a smoking crater. <laughs> There's no sticks left either. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you can ruin even the best ideas by taking them too far. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you on that. And I agree with you that medicine is prone to that yeah. error. And I just want to be kind of consistent in, in the messages that I've, that I've been saying here that I, I, I do kind of ascribe to this less is more movement in, in medicine. I do think that the available evidence supports that in general. I do think we have to fight this bias towards action and we have to fight these, this immediacy bias. We need to uh, uh, fight the uh, attribution error that we talked about where we think that our interventions are, are doing great things to people even though the patient, so you know, patient might get better anyway. So that's relevant to like stroke care. I actually agree with you about all of that. I'm just less far from the middle on it than you are, I think. But I actually, everything oh, I, you said, I, I, I agree I'm, with. I'm way out on one tail. Yeah. And I, I don't know if there's anybody else, even in my department, that has this point of view. But I think, listen, I think that this is something that I can contribute to the field oh, of emergency too. medicine. That dynamic equilibrium among different opinions is right. part of how we adjust we, and, and calibrate ourselves. We tend to value the interventions and the yeah. people that are interventionalist. They... We, we reward them with high status. We reward them with, you know, administrative roles. 
uh, and I'm talking about in our specialty. And we give them speaking engagements at major conferences. I remember studying for the boards, and it was formally yeah. the strategy that if you have, if you're waffling between two choices, take the aggressive one. Yeah. Always. Right. And I was also, and I remember the dictum, if you think it, do it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, is just the wrong, it's the wrong thing to do. So I think the little bit of little bit of pushback is is actually healthy, and I, that's that's kind of where where I'm coming from. I'd agree with all that. Yeah. Um, and again, for people listening, uh, don't take medical advice from a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where I wanted to go with that was the idea that an error is not always a mistake. A systematic bias in favor of the less costly error, within limits, can be a good strategy. Right. And so hopefully, again, if we believe in evidence-based medicine, we can design trials that will allow us to, to accurately assess that. Right. Because we have to make bets all the time. We, right. We cannot and, and we're going to be wrong. Yep. We're going to be wrong. The, if we do the absolute best that can be done, all we can hit is the statistically most likely answers. Yeah. So the, the idea of working in, in a medical system and never hurting anybody and never being wrong is just unrealistic. Actually, there are docs with that reputation and there's a word for them. Liars! Damn liars! <laughs> Again, well said. <laughs> the quotable coffee brown. <laughs> um, what about the halo bias? Tell me what the halo bias is. So, I don't like this guy. He was really mean to me. Therefore, he's not all that sick, and he's a drug-seeking bastard. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one I think we absolutely have to, to, have to recognize in mm -hmm. ourselves and actively combat. Mm -hmm. never, in other words, whenever we're feeling that in ourselves, mm -hmm. the feeling to, of anger towards a patient, that's where we really need to... That's never going to lead to a good, a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, again, we're human, right? And so if we're being berated... And sometimes actually abused by, by patients, that can happen. Mm -hmm. um, or physically attacked. Even. Or, or even physically attacked. And that's not something we should encourage. Uh, we shouldn't encourage you know, you know, reprehensible behavior on the part of patients, too. There, there have to be limits. But whenever you feel that anger towards a patient, there's a darn good chance that you're going to do the wrong thing for that patient. The way that I um, paraphrase this to my students is... Yeah. What do you call a man who got drunk, went on the wrong side of the freeway, and plowed into a car killing four children? And he's now your patient. The answer is your patient. Sir. Yeah. Yeah. The answer is sir. Also a murderer, but in the context that you're describing, he's your patient. You know, Which is I, why I don't usually ask. When I take the lab you know? coat off, yeah. I can be furious at the guy. No, we've, we've, we've had these kinds of situations where... In uh, ju just about that exact same scenario. Yep. And we have to be very careful to not act punitively against the patients. Our, our role is as a caregiver, and it's it's a it's a sacred role. It is. If this guy got hurt in a shootout with the police, mm -hmm. and he's my patient, I'm going to do everything I can to stabilize his wounds, mitigate long-term harm, and treat yep. his immediate pain. Yeah, and again, taking the murderer part out of it, <laughs> there are there are jerks in the world who have legitimate health problems, and you might want to just get them out of your ER, or you know, call security and get them hauled out, or people that are in, even drug seeking uh, patients that you want just to leave, but in fact have have some other underlying problems that you have that you if you were more attentive, 
you would pick up on those things. Yeah, obnoxious people get sick. Yeah. And when they do, they're not obnoxious people anymore. They're our patients. That's right. But, I mean, we're describing an ideal here. Docs are human. And the halo effect is we can sometimes downplay the symptoms and the concerns of people who, for whatever reason, rub us the wrong way. Yeah. The, 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 the t- typical scenario that I'm thinking of is, oh, he's just making that up. Or she's exaggerating her symptoms um, for whatever reason. Incidentally, that pushy person that you bring into the emergency room as your advocate who will demand everything on your behalf is not helping you. If you want to get optimal care... I'm not sure. I think if you want to get optimal care, you should use words like please and thank you and stuff like that. I think the more your doc likes you, the more you can make the halo effect work in your favor. But the more you have that demanding advocate, the more everybody's going to run away and hide Interesting. when that person comes in a doorway of your room. I think, I think it cuts both ways. I think if you're really sick, and particularly if you're, if you're having some cognitive issues because of you know, medication, it's really, really useful to have a family member there to advocate for you. I'm not saying don't have an advocate. I agree with that. Yeah. I'm talking about the advocate who's pushy and demanding right. rather than the person who's who's a clear communicator. There's a big difference between assertive and aggressive, and very few people understand where that line is. Great point. Yeah. So I'm not saying don't have an assertive uh, advocate. I'm saying don't have an advocate that alienates everybody you depend on. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been at this for an hour and uh, about five minutes. Getting about time to wrap it up there, is it? Well, how, many more, how many more biases do we want to get through here? You know, I think we covered a good uh, sampling of them. And as I say, it's a very large topic. Yeah. But it is something I think is helpful for the medical community. We all know this. I don't think we've actually said anything tonight that people don't know. But stopping and reflecting on it from time to time can help us up our game, I hope. No, that's very true. And I guess you know, just to kind of circle back to the beginning where I said that actively confronting some of these biases can help us do better, both better medicine, uh, better dis- medical decision-making, better diagnosing, and also, I think, as someone who's an advocate for the idea of evolutionary medicine, that sometimes the evolutionary answer is staring us in the face, and we need to kind of get over uh, some of our biases. So the, the, the bias that Ronaldo Bellamo mentions in that Smack podcast that I would refer you to is this idea that we, if we think that we understand the physiology, then we kind of go with it and we double down, we triple down. We think, well, yeah, this person just needs, you know, they have a deficiency of X, we need to give them more X and then we're going to make them better. Um, and we also, we've, we've mentioned on this podcast many times, again, treating the numbers and not the patient, that we, we feel better if the blood pressure comes up with a little bit of IV fluids and we, we pat ourselves in the back. Um, and, and we do this over and over again in spite of evidence telling us that it could be harmful. And I think this has to do with I'm, I'm, there may not be a, a word for it, but it's sort of an, um, it's the underlying heuristic. It's the, it's the, the motivating idea that, that makes us do things. If we put undue weight on these ideas, when they're wrong, we can really hurt patients. Uh, so this is an area where I think evolutionary medicine has something to teach people and can, can really make a big impact on folks. When we see a correlation of signs that we associate with bad outcomes, we try to reverse the signs in order to reverse the outcomes. 
sometimes that works. Sometimes the signs are an epiphenomenon, and we've basically become a cargo cult. But the reason we know some of this is that people do the follow-up studies, look at outcomes, and then write the papers that you read and report on in your podcasts. Well, there's that. So, yeah, so hopefully we're doing a service here as Science part of the, to be the whole universe of uh, you know, the, the randomized controlled trialists. We have the people doing the meta-analyses, and then we have us. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. <laughs> but I, I listen, I, I, I believe this very strongly. Um, and I'll just maybe, uh, again, in the moving towards wrapping things up here, mention that we have this great conference planned for this summer. It's the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, Public Health. Our fourth annual meetings in Park City, Utah, August 1st through 4th. We're going to have a special session looking at these exact issues in the setting of critical illness, emergency care, and sepsis. And the question is, when are we doing too much to our patients? When are, when are our patients' findings adapt, adaptive or beneficial? When, when are... Things, when are the, are the things that we shouldn't intervene with? Where are there still areas of controversy? Where do we have insufficient knowledge to, to know what to do? And what can we do different? So we're really going to explore these themes in a big way at that conference. So listeners, you should come. Are you going to post videos from the conference? I would like to. We haven't in any previous conference done that. and we, I don't know if we have a setup to do it. But I think that we will. Maybe at least audio. Yeah. I think it's, it'd be it'd be great, you know, this whole you know the the podcast that I referenced, social media and critical care. They're really really good about posting videos and they podcast all of the of the previous talks after some period of time has elapsed, almost a year, and they podcast and tweet and use social media to get ideas out. And it really is a neat idea. That's part of the the foam. Uh, community. This is free, open access medicine. The idea that everything should be free to everybody. You know, it's uh, something that I ascribe to. Big fan of foam. Yeah, foam's good stuff. Thanks, Jim. Well, hey, coffee, as usual, this was a great conversation. Maybe one of our best. Always a pleasure, sir. (laughs) We'll do it again.